Welcome to the podcast, Speak Your Peace. This is a podcast about Utah's history. My name is Brad Westwood. I'm Senior Public Historian, the Utah Department of Heritage and Arts. The past is never truly in the past. It's all around us. It informs us. It speaks to both our shared and to our separate identities. Speak Your Peace, the podcast where writers, historians, curators, all those who contribute to Utah's history share their insights and discoveries. If there's one place, one podcast to get your history fix, this is the place. If you like what you're listening to and you'd like to hear more, we recommend that you also check out Writing Westward, a podcast produced by the Red Center at Brigham Young University. Today, my guest is Dr. Greg Thompson, Associate Dean at the University of Utah's J. Willard Marriott Library for Special Collections and an Adjunct Professor of history. Hello, Greg. Good morning. Thompson has been a major force for history in Utah in the gathering and preserving of vital primary sources, published works, and archival materials. As the director of U of U Special Collections and its university archives, Greg established, among others, the U of U Ski Archive, which documents the entire ski industry in Utah. Also, many young or many of Utah's ethnic archives have been collected and have been a deep area of interest to Dr. Thompson. Uh, He has also developed archives for the uh, Women's History Archive, LGBTQ Plus Archive, and so much more. He's also uh, editor for the Tanner Trust publication series, Utah, the Mormons in the West. In 2019, the Utah State Historical Society acknowledged his statewide influence, his career in writing, teaching, collecting, and documenting Utah's history by making him a fellow, the highest honor of the Utah State Historical Society. So good to have you here and speak your piece, Greg. Thank you very much for having me. In this episode, we will be discussing the late 19th century Ute Indian nation, San Juan County, located in the southwest corner of Utah, and a little-known story about Bear's Ears. So first, Greg, as it truly is a spoiler, tell us briefly what happened in the late 1880s and 1890s related to the Bear's Ears area uh, within the Utah's San Juan County. Just what is the story here? At core, the uh, state of Colorado citizens were pushing to remove the Southern Ute Reservation in the southwest corner of the state, uh, adjacent to the Fort Corners, out of the state of Colorado, and into Utah. They had tried to combine the Southern Ute uh, Reservation residents with the Uinta Basin, Uinta and Oray Ute Reservation citizens, and making it into one large uh, Ute Reservation. The effort uh, spanned for nearly 25 years, and um, it uh, proved to be uh, a failure, but only by a vote in the House of Representatives in Congress that the um, Senate had already supported a measure to move uh, approximately uh, 1,700 to 2,000 Southern Utes out of Colorado into San Juan County, Utah, on a 2.1 million acre reservation. 
San Juan County, Utah is 4.9 million acres. So as you can see, they were going to take a substantial portion of the existing San Juan reservation and make it into uh, a Ute reservation. That included the lands of Bears Ears and the Bears Ears National Monument and um, uh, the and the uh, public lands uh, in surrounding that area. Now, the Southern Utes were not foreign to that land, were they? They were not. There are three major groups that make up the Southern Utes as they uh, were uh, pulled together in the um, 1860s. And um, the one of those groups was known as the Weemanooch or the Weenooch, depending on uh, your choice of of terms. Uh, today we call them the Ute Mountain Utes. They live in the furthest west, uh, south, uh, southwest corner of the state of Colorado today. And um, those people considered the area of Bears Ears up to the LaSalle Mountains and beyond as part of their aboriginal lands. Among other tribes, I suppose, as well. I mean, there, yes, the Paiutes were uh, the uh, Paiutes today. We recognize them as the San Juan Paiutes, lived on both sides of the Colorado River uh, and into San Juan County and uh, were considered neighbors of the Utes. So, speaking of Colorado and southeastern Utah uh, and, and the Utes there, what's their way of life? Uh, how are they living? In those uh, decades? For uh, generations, uh, almost centuries, at least three, they lived as a, um, uh, a nomadic people. They had their own areas of influence that covered Colorado, three quarters of Colorado, Utah, and into northern New Mexico as we know it today. They had developed very early uh, a tremendous capacity uh, with uh, using horse as the horse as a major mode of transportation. And um, they, they became uh, known as the mountain people. And with all the uh, characteristics of mountain people, they hunted. Um, they also, using the horse, were able to go out on the plains and uh, hunt buffalo. Buffalo became uh, an absolute uh, important part of their economic lifestyle. And they uh, lived in teepees, uh, very um, um, formidable teepees, as well as using uh, a form of a wiki-up, somewhat like the Paiute people use of the Great Basin. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, they uh, their mobility was enhanced by how they could erect and uh, and take down teepees, load them up and move them, move on um, in groups of, uh, initially they were smaller groups, probably um, 15, 20 people, a couple of teepees maybe, maybe three. It grew with time uh, where you might uh, come across three or 400 youths together. And, and a, that gr those large groupings happened because of the horse and the, uh, the ability <laughs> to maintain a yeah. group like that. It, it was a growing economic capacity um, that also included uh, some uh, culture, 
uh, effort with culturing effort with uh, plants. So they they did a little planting and like the Paiutes, they would plant, go away, come back at the correct cycle for uh, harvest and uh, incorporate that into their economic uh, cycle base. They um, they also um, were um, very good traders. And uh, so their lifestyle or their support, um, uh, uh, main support, included trading with the neighbors around them, Navajos, Paiutes, uh, people out on the plains. And uh, they also developed the capacity to manage um, cattle herds and later sheep herds. Mm. And they also had goat herds. We don't think of that mm-hmm. uh, when we think of Utes. We actually don't think of them as livestock people, uh, ranchers. Mm-hmm. It just, they were mobile, mobile ranchers. They just had that adaptability uh-huh. as yeah. new technologies yeah. and new opportunities. Yeah. Came to be. So in the mid-1860s and into the 1870s, the Utah Valley Timpanogos Ute Band, uh, who lived in the Wasatch Range around the Timpanogos on the eastern shores of Utah Lake, the Sandpitch Utes of the San, uh, San Pete Valley, the Severe River Valley, uh, 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 they lived, uh, those are the ones that were living in the Uinta Basin. And sadly, those uh, branches of the Utes uh, were pushed into the Uinta oh. Reservation. What I think is the predecessor of what is today the Uinta Ure uh, Reservation next to Fort Duchesne in, in Uinta Valley. Would you describe better just what happened with the Colorado Utes in the 1880s and 90s, their Colorado Reservation, uh, those not living within the Colorado Reserva- Reservation? Uh, there's some real interesting parts of this story I want you to okay. lead up um, Like with the Utah Utes that you've mentioned, uh, with the arrival of the um, Mormon settlers in 1847 and the colonization program of Brigham Young, you began to see individuals from outside the region taking over uh, uh, very important lands, productive lands within the areas you described. That causes, um, that's the causation for moving the, um, the Utah Utes to the Uinta Basin and uh, creating a reservation for them there. In Utah, the story, I mean, excuse me, in Colorado, the story takes on a different tone. And it happens much earlier. It, it uh, well, uh, it, it, it does because um, the Colorado Utes uh, used northern New Mexico, and early on they came into contact with the Spanish who uh, had arrived in the late 16th century established Santa Fe, for instance, in 1606 or 7 in that time period. And uh, most people don't understand how old Santa Fe is as an ongoing community. And so the Utes uh, created um, a a trading pattern with these people. They also raided them. And um, in part, that's where they picked up their skills with the horse and um, and their product, the supply of horse. Um, and the, uh, uh, so you have a little bit of contact early with the Spanish and later with the Mexicans after 1821, when 
uh, Mexico declares independence from Spain. But the real driver in the story starts in 1859 when gold is found in the uh, surrounding areas of Denver, Colorado. The Colorado Gold Rush of 1859 is the central theme and thread through the story of what happens to the Utes, the Colorado Utes, for the next uh, 50 years. And it's, it's, oh, it, it is about 50 years before the southern Utes arrive at a stable location for a, an extended period of time. So, so when the uh, white settlers in Colorado start, uh, uh, initially they build reservations in Colorado. Right. What yes. happens to those? So um, the, um, the, the prospectors, that's the, the leading group banned in the whole mining process. The prospectors uh, hit uh, Denver, they hit Cripple Creek, they hit Pikes Peak. They move into the interior parks, the three middle parks of Colorado in the middle of the Rocky Mountains. And they come down into the southwestern part of the state by 1860. Now, the gold rush is 1859. We, uh, we date it. By 1860, a guy by the name of Baker is down bouncing around in the La Plata Mountains of southwestern Colorado and in the San Juan Mountains. He absolutely identifies that there is a huge hunk of rock down there worth a lot of money. And but he's got a problem. Civil War starts. So the actual exploration of that whole region in southwestern Colorado is put on hold while the country settles its civil war. After the civil war, and very soon after, um, the prospectors come back. They come, it's interesting how they come. They don't, we kind of, we kind of think of Colorado as being east-west in nature. Um, these people actually come out of the um, Santa Fe Trail into Santa Fe up to Abiquiu, New Mexico, uh, which was the last jumping off point for going into Colorado. And they, um, they build, uh, they extend that jumping off point to Chama, New Mexico, and they get over into the, the Animas Valley. If uh, those of you listening uh, have traveled through southwest Colorado, you'll recognize Durango and, and Silverton as part of that valley system. They get into that valley by uh, 1866-67, and they start opening up the mines. This puts pressure on... Uh, all three of the bands of the Southern Utes, the Mowatch, the Kapota, uh, and the Wimanuch. And they start complaining to the federal government um, who, in the Treaty of 1849, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, mm -hmm. uh, the, the Utes uh, declared dependent sovereignty relationships with the United States. And so um, they recognized what that meant and understood it quite well. And so they complain to uh, the federal sources that these people are 
trespassing into their areas. They are destroying their grazing areas and their wildlife, their hunting source. And this isn't just uh, ancestral land. This was uh, federal granted that, reservation. This this was land that was by then considered to be Ute land. Mm-hmm. You have a uh, originally, you had an area that was about two-thirds of Colorado, and it was recognized um, as Ute land. Um, by 1868, 68 now, so, so 60 Bakers in southwestern Colorado uh, comes back in 67, 68. The, the federal government, uh, pushed by uh, the citizens of the uh, territory of Colorado had removed the Utes to a reservation described as roughly one quarter of the western part of Colorado, running from border to border, and um, that that is the area where the San Juan, San Miguel, uh, Lake City, and uh, Gunnison, Crested Butte areas of mining, uh, and Aspen all take place. Mm-hmm. So obviously you're going to have trouble. Mm-hmm. And, um, in the treaty of 1868, um, that, that section of, of the, re- that reservation was created, uh, and recognized by 1873, it is, uh, modified in what is called the Bruno or the San Juan uh, Session uh, Treaty. A chunk of land, a rectangle piece that it included those reservation or those mountain areas that I described are removed from that six, that earlier uh, 60s reservation site. And um, it took the mountains, really, what it did is it took the mountains loaded with the mostly silver or away from the Ute reservation. So you had a Ute reservation in Colorado that had a Northern part, a 20 wide mile alley stretching from the Northern to the Southern part. It was like you had removed a tooth from um, the Ute reservation on the East side. And so you had the Northern with the uh, Northern bands a 20-mile uh, wide stretch that went along the border of Colorado and Utah. And then you had the Southern Ute Reservation, which now becomes a space of land of 110 miles running east and west from the Utah border to the uh, San Juan River and 15 miles wide running along the New Mexico-Colorado border. And and so... Uh as I understand the mining, the cattle industry uh, involving Eastern uh, and European investors and the so-called friends of the Indian groups were pushing for the Dawes Act. Now, this is into the next decade, into the 1880s, known as the General Allotment Act or the Dawes um, uh, Act. Tell us about the act and what implications it were for the... Okay. We need to understand what the agreement of 1880 with the Utes did. It's the backbone to what manifests as the Dawes Act and also manifests as the core piece of our story today, what's going on in San Juan County. How the Utah. And um, in 1880, 
after the Meeker, I call it the Meeker incident, some call it the Meeker massacre, occurred in the northern part of the Ute Reservation in, in northwestern Colorado, um, one of the bands of Utes rose up against a, an agent who was uh, uh, established in that area to look after the Utes. He was tearing up their um, fine grazing land and and their favorite racetrack, and uh, they killed him. And uh, several uh, several of his staff captured three women were part of the the families and three children, and took them, uh, kidnapped them for uh, a, just under a month. And um, that action resulted in the Treaty of 1880. That's what gets three major bands moved out of northern Colorado into the Uinta and Oray Reservation in Utah. So they're saying you're no longer going to re- – you're, you're not going to be just in Colorado. You're, yep. you're going uh, north and east. You're going into Utah. And they created a portion, additional portion, to the Uinta Reservation. Okay, so that we are now down to three major bands in um, Colorado, and there was a, a, a big political push to try to get rid of them. The 1880 agreement stated that the three bands on the Southern Ute Reservation were to be moved to the La Plata River. The La Plata, La Plata River is a small drainage river out of the La Plata Mountains that does not run all year long. It dries up. Yeah. But they wanted, the, the idea was to move them into um, the La Plata uh, 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 Valley area. And uh, they allotted, uh, or they said they would allot lands to each of the tribal um, family leaders, to family members, and to the group. This so it's a sad little Jeffersonian Yes. Make them all, make these uh, uh, in Indians who have developed this nomadic culture, who have uh, moving from one area to another, but also are uh, uh, hunters and yeah. farmers, but they're by no means anything like the. We have an equatable movement that goes on in Western history with the um, non Indian citizens of the West. You get the great cattle ranchers and the great cattle company runners coming in first, uh, and they take, uh, they need open range and good grasslands. They're followed by those people who want land, and so there is a way for them to take homesteads, 160 acres, Mm -hmm. and make it into uh, a small. Farm. This is after the 1862 uh-huh. Homestead Act. Yeah, and it, it's absolutely a parallel movement for what went on uh, let, with, let, the, let with the, the Indians. The, the white Europeans, uh, Euro-Americans get their land, and oh, by the way, we can also, um, in, in a sense, sort of take the Indian out of the Indian by yeah. making them farmers, sadly. And, and pretty much take the cattle cattlemen out of the cattle business, mm-hmm. the large cattle companies. Yeah, usually owned in abstentia. Um, so that that uh, that clause in the agreement of 1880 sets forward a motion to try to break down the Southern Ute Reservation we described earlier and 
place the people on the La Plata River, including a possible location in New Mexico, just before the La Plata River joins the San Juan River. Okay, so um, upon further uh, survey, they find out this isn't going to work. You can't put these nearly 2,000 people in this area um, and, uh, and meet their economic uh, cycle requirements. And so the idea emerges rather quickly to look to San Juan County, Utah, a lot of empty land, land that hadn't been, uh, had had almost no settlement in it uh, to that time, and some of the most rugged country in the United States. There's a reason why nobody had gone into it, and there's a reason why um, the um, the the uh, Mormon clon, clon, colonial settlers, excuse me, uh, of 1879. Uh, were sent out that late to create a Mormon colony, and that was in, the, that, in San Juan County. The the uh, prevailing the the authorities of Utah, uh, be be them federal government as well as the Mormon Church, they're thinking, okay, this is our state. Uh, we want to claim it. We're going to get down there, and so you have the Hole in the Rock expedition. Yeah, and often the Hole in the Rock expedition is not described with the within the broader historical context. What's going on with the cattle herd? So the cattle story for San Juan County uh, absolutely blows my mind. Um, so realize in 1872, there are virtually no people other than Indians, Native Americans, in San Juan County. By 1878, 77, 78, uh, maybe even earlier, uh, Cattle herds numbering in the in the vicinity of ten to twelve thousand per herd are moved out of Texas and Kansas uh, and into um, San Juan County, and the reason they come is the mining markets in southwestern Colorado. So, so the uh, the groups that are going to be buying this beef. Are the mining camps. That's right. And when they develop, then the cattle industry follows. And um, I have uh, and others have identified at least six major uh, companies and operations that were running cattle, mostly Texas, uh, Kansas, a little bit of, of Nebraska, um, bred cattle into San Juan County. By my thinking... Uh, it could have been something like 70,000 head of cattle in San Juan County. You know as well as I, Brad, you've been down there a lot of times. Mm -hmm. You look around, you go, how, how are happen? you going to feed all these cattle? Well, uh, they used very rich lands on uh, around the LaSalle Mountains, around the uh, Bajo or the Blue mountains and down in towards uh, the area where the San Juan River runs uh, across the state of Utah. And they took them up into the mountains and then took them down in the mm -hmm. west yeah. sections in I, the summer. I had fun the other day. I met um, Heidi Red, uh, was talking to her, and I uh, she runs cattle, and she runs cattle on uh, on the southern 
end of the uh, uh, Abajos. And uh, I said, my research is telling me this about the area that you live in. And I told her what I just said. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, I think think there was at least 100,000 head in that time. And And I said, wow. (laughs) It's just an amazing amount of cattle. Isn't there a connection to the contemporary cattle industry? I mean, sure. What is it? It, it, It's direct. When when the absentee owners, and they were virtually all absentee owners except for uh, the bluff Mormons. These were the European and... Uh, and English, English, investors. a lot of English. Yeah, yeah. Um, the these absentee owners uh, had the had their cattle herds there. In the late 1880s and the 1890s, you get challenges to maintaining large herds of cattle. You have a couple of really rough winters that kill off a good deal of the stock, and the mining. Uh, industry, silver-based, collapses in 1893 with the depression of uh, the the global depression uh, and the use of silver. So the uh, Utah Mormon cattle ranchers, those early mm-hmm. uh, outfits, do they benefit? From yes, this? they do. That they buy out. Preston know? Nutter, and you know yeah. part, the history of Preston Nutter. He had operations on the Mormon Strip down in Arizona, and he had operations in Nine Mile Can- uh, Canyon and beyond, He uh, and down uh, further south. He bought out part of those herds. That's how he strengthened his holds for uh, cattle lands in um, the uh, late uh, 1890s, 1890s and the aughts and teens of, two, of 1900. Greg, this is really a fascinating story. Uh, You have been listening to Speak Your Peace. This is a podcast about Utah's history. The past is never truly in the past. It's around us. It speaks to both our shared and to our separate identities. We hope you will tune in again to the second half of this podcast. Uh, My guest today is Dr. Greg Thompson, Associate uh, Dean of the University of Utah's Marriott Library and a Western historian. Greg, we'll have you back in just a minute. Thank you so much for all of you who are listening. We hope you'll tune in to the second segment of this fascinating episode.